Please open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue on. We were last in this book in September. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 24 to chapter 2, verses 15. We have a large section of scripture to cover this afternoon, so I'm grateful that everybody got an extra hour of sleep last night. And it reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this afternoon I pray that as we look into the scripture, you would enlighten us through your spirit, Lord, that everything we look at would give us a better image of our Savior in Christ and what he's done for us. Pray this afternoon, Lord, you help us to focus on the message, Lord, which you would have us to hear. You take my feeble words, Lord, that you would bless that, that you would feed your people this afternoon, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a couple months since we're last in Colossians, so I want to refresh our memory some. In chapter 1, Paul started the letter giving thanks for the Colossians for two specific reasons, their love for all the saints and because of their faith. He then started describing Christ and what he has done. He went into depth to explain how he is preeminent, meaning surpassing all others, superiority to hold the highest rank to have first place. He then reminded the Colossians how they were prior to Christ, prior to redemption, prior to reconciliation. He returned to Christ again, describing his nature. We need to be precise and exact in our understanding of who Christ is, so Paul makes that clear to the Colossians. Now here in this section, Paul describes the connection he has with the Colossians, how his sufferings are tied to them, 
He describes his ministry and goes back to the preeminent one and points the Colossians to Christ. Paul emphasizes Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency to those that are redeemed. Up to this point in the book, we've had some clues into the error of the Colossians that Paul is addressing. It's in this section where we get some additional insight into that error. And it's almost as if Paul was building up toward that with everything he stated leading up to this point. We can learn from Paul and how he addresses error within the church. He explains to the Colossians what they're doing and the errors in those things. He then allows the Colossians to see themselves. He allows them to examine themselves to see their own error. He gives them a picture of how they look and then another picture of how they should look. There was an end goal, and they were working toward that end goal. We see the same approach when we choose our vocation in life. We start with no experience. We have no job skills. We look at what skills are needed for the particular vocation we've chosen, and we lay out a plan to get everything we need completed in order to work in that particular trade, whether it be college or some type of trade school or some other form of training. We know the steps to get to that end goal. We know we need training and schooling, so we start working on those things. And sometimes we get a little bit off track somewhere along the way, but if we have the end goal in sight, we can correct our errors and work toward achieving the goal that we set. And in a way, that's what, what Paul is doing here in the book of Colossians. The Colossians started off well, but they're a bit off track right now. They started off like every one of us. They are lost and opposed to God. And as we read about them, we see that they are now in Christ and are on their way toward the end goal, which is really to leave this earth having served Christ to the utmost their hope being that which lay up in store for them in heaven. But somewhere along the way, they've gotten a bit mixed up. They've gotten into error. They have deviated from the instruction given to them. They've been influenced by others and led down a wrong path. And we must be careful not to think of ourselves as any different than the Colossians. They are not unlike us, and we are prone to the very same error. They were in error, but they were not written off. Paul heard of their error, and he worked to give them some guidance that would get them back on track in the right direction headed toward that end goal. In order to do that, Paul reminds them of where they started. He then described to them where they were, and he finished by reminding them of where they needed to be. He gave them the guidance they needed to get out of the ditch and back into the middle of the road, heading toward an end goal where they would receive the hope laid up for them in heaven. In our goal to learn a vocation, we will either have college studies or some type of formal training, specific curriculum that we study to learn our chosen vocation. And as Christians, we set out to learn about the things of God. Our curriculum for this task consists of Scripture, consists of the Bible. That's the sole source of instruction. All that we need to know and learn is contained within these 66 books. And sure, we can utilize other resources to help us with that, but ultimately it's all derived from these 66 books. The foundation of Christianity is our Lord Jesus Christ, and our foundation for learning of him is the Bible. Paul takes the Colossians back to foundational things to correct and firm up their foundation in Christ. It appears that their foundation was corrupted, that they had gotten off track. And Paul knows this, and that is why he points the Colossians back to Christ over and over. That's why he goes in-depth about who Christ is. The foundation has to be correct. It must be without error. So listen, as we go through these verses, you'll see how Paul again and again points us to Christ. We need to ensure we have an understanding of our foundation, the character and nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 24, he states, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Have you ever heard someone say that? It's certainly not a common phrase we hear. Why would Paul start talking about his suffering if he's emphasizing Christ to the Colossians? He does this because he knows that even our suffering should point us to Christ. 
He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. And notice that Paul ties his suffering back to the church. He tells us how the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, functions with us as members of the body. That Christ suffered for his church and Paul suffered as part of the body for the church also. So the question for us is, do we rejoice when we suffer? Are we happy when we suffer? It's a challenging and convicting question, at least it is for me. Perhaps the Colossians were just like me in that they did not normally rejoice through their sufferings. But Paul rejoices in his sufferings. If I do not rejoice in my suffering, then perhaps I'm looking at suffering in the wrong light. Perhaps we may be viewing suffering in the wrong way. I don't think Paul could have started this section in a more convicting way. He rejoices in sufferings for the Colossians. But remember something, Paul is currently in prison. We see that from chapter 4 in the very last verse of the book where it states, remember my chains. So does Paul have things to complain about? Yes, he obviously does. He could be murmuring about the dreadful imprisonment, about his constant persecution, about lack of food, lack of companionship, but he doesn't. Paul sees his situation in the correct light. He views his suffering as I should, as we should. And let's face it, we are like the Colossians. We have the same nature as they did. Think about how I describe the way that Paul corrects the Colossians. Think about how that applies to us. When we suffer, are we rejoicing or are we complaining? Paul is using his example to teach the Colossians and to teach us. I'll make a blanket statement and speak generally for all of us. We tend to complain when we suffer. But Paul is our example of where we, where we should be. We should be rejoicing when we suffer. It's a sobering thought. When our suffering is for the benefit of the body of Christ, we should rejoice. Paul knows his purpose, and that is to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. He is focused on that one mission. Anything he suffers while carrying out his apostleship, he rejoices in because he is doing it all to further the gospel to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that when we serve Christ, not everything is going to be easy and fun. We know that when we serve Christ, we can expect some difficulty, some challenging times, some trials, and some testing. And some know it better than others. And like Paul, we too need to rejoice when we suffer while we serve our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul sees how his suffering benefits others. We need to do the same thing when we suffer. And this idea is right in line with what Paul tells the Corinthians. I'll summarize what he states in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He says, Our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And God comforts us in our affliction so we can comfort others in their affliction. We share in Christ's sufferings and in Christ's comfort also, and we experience comfort when we patiently endure common sufferings as Christians. So do you understand Paul's mindset? Do you understand his focus? Do you see his perspective on serving Christ? Do you understand how he sees his suffering as benefiting the body of Christ? But let's clarify something real quickly. What exactly does Paul mean by sufferings? What is he referring to? Sufferings mean those things endured for Christ for the sake of his body, for the sake of the church. Paul's not speaking of a self-inflicted suffering. He is speaking of the consequences of carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. He is speaking of the suffering mentioned in Acts 9 when Christ stated, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And you notice Paul doesn't question his suffering. He simply rejoices in it. There's a way we're supposed to react when we suffer, and I think it is likely that we may not be expressing the correct reaction, the correct emotion. 
And I can tell you that this is one thing that's really been impressed upon me as I study Colossians, my need to rejoice and have joy in everything, not just when things are going my way. Anybody can thank God when things are going well as a grounded Christian who can praise God when things are not going well. Let's contrast how we often act when we go through difficulty. We complain, we may question God and wonder why we go through such times. And where do we get this idea that our lives as Christians are to be without trouble? It's certainly not what Paul taught. We complain, but Paul rejoices. He knows that his sufferings will benefit the brethren. He knows that his sufferings will help the church grow. He knows that his sufferings will strengthen their faith because Paul can see the end result of his suffering. Paul knows that as he suffers, it will benefit the body of Christ. So are we at the point where our reaction to suffering is to rejoice? Is that the first thing that comes to our minds as we suffer? So how is it that Paul can rejoice in suffering? How can we ensure we rejoice when we suffer? One way to rejoice when we suffer is to remember who we suffer for. You notice that Paul knows who he's suffering for. It's not for himself. It is for Christ, who's the head of the church. It is for the body of the church. It is for the Colossians. He states that he is suffering for their sake, for the sake of the church. When we change our perspective to our circumstances, we can change our response to them. And Paul goes on in verse 25. He continues explaining his ministry to the church. He describes himself as becoming a minister or deacon or servant in the church according to the stewardship of God given to him. Paul was a steward over the church, put in place by Christ to make God fully known. And you see Paul's purpose as he explains what he is doing for Christ. He's explaining how he's responsible for teaching and spreading the gospel. He was actively teaching and training and raising up servants for Christ. Then in verse 26, Paul mentions, he speaks of a mystery. He said, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And we don't have to wonder what the mystery is. Paul states in verse 27, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, he states that the mystery is Christ himself. I think we often take this mystery for granted. We are on the other side of the cross. We have lived after our Savior was crucified, buried, and rose the third day and ascended to heaven. And Pastor Brian, he actually mentioned this in his sermon last week when he stated, we are in a position of privilege looking back. We're in a position of privilege. Think about that. But it wasn't always so. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses told of the Messiah that would come. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Those that lived prior to Jesus coming in the flesh longed for the day the Messiah would come. Listen to what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 13. He said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If we consider those passages, we can conclude that the things we now read, the things we now know, were the very things those same prophets and righteous people longed to see. I think of that righteous and devout man, Simeon, in the second chapter of Luke, where it states he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. It states that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before seeing the Christ. As Joseph and Mary brought the child Jesus into the temple, Simeon took him up and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. People long to see the Christ. People long to know the mystery that was hidden for ages, the mystery now revealed to us. And sometimes we ask for blessings as physical things, money and possessions. Do we consider how great of a blessing we have lived past with our Messiah being revealed? 
Don't you think if you go back in the Old Testament, ask one of the prophets, he would rather have riches or to have had the Messiah revealed, he would have chosen the revealed Messiah. We have blessings greater than we can imagine, and we often overlook them. We know of the mystery hidden for ages. Many prophets and righteous people long to know what we know. We are blessed beyond measure. Simeon said he could die after witnessing the promised Messiah, and we shouldn't take that for granted. And Paul elaborates on the mystery. He says, to them, to them, meaning his saints, to the redeemed, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of the mystery. What are true riches? What matches the riches of the glory of this mystery? Who needs physical riches when as saints we have God indwelling us? Christ is our hope, and that makes us rich beyond anything this world can offer. Have you considered that? But no one else, is, is Christ not enough for us? Are we not satisfied in Christ? In Ephesians 3, Paul speaks of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable meaning impossible to be traced. And we as saints have unending riches in Christ. We can never, ever exhaust them. So why do we long for anything else? Are we not satisfied in him? God chose to make known to us the riches of the glory of the mystery. Christ in us, our hope. And our hope should lie in but one thing, and that is the Christ. There is absolutely nothing in this world that brings us hope. It is only in him. The mystery that was for ages hidden is now revealed, Christ in us. Christ is a Messiah, both the Jews and Gentiles. Every man in Christ has his hope of glory. And Paul goes on in verse 28, explaining his work to the Colossians. He said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim. You may think this is just Paul's job, that he was the one called by Christ, but Paul states here, we, he said, we proclaim. Paul states that they proclaim Christ by warning and teaching everyone who they come across. His goal being that everyone is presented mature in Christ. That should be our goal, not to just know the minimum, but to really explore Scripture, to know as much about Christ as we can, to be mature in Christ. Paul is admonishing and teaching, knowing the end goal of his effort, that it would result in them being presented mature in Christ, that they would learn of their errors, repent, and then change, that they would desire to grow in sanctification, they would desire the things of God. But this wasn't an easy task, even for Paul. Paul says he toiled and he struggled at it. I know we can often make excuses about how hard it is, about how we cannot do it, and those statements are actually true. It is hard in our flesh. In our flesh, we cannot do this. But Paul states here that he toils with spreading the gospel. He wearies himself with the labor of spreading the gospel. He continues on with the idea of proclaiming and warning. He states that he is worn out doing this. He wars with the flesh in accomplishing this task. But he also clarifies where his strength lies, where, uh, where ours comes from also. He toils and struggles with all his energy that Christ powerfully works in him. We don't have to rely on our own selves. If we did, we would fail. Paul relies on Christ's energy working within him. He does not rely on his flesh. He does not rely on his own power, but he relies upon that of Christ. We tend to think that we do it in our own ability, in our own will. But even Paul knew that wasn't enough. Paul struggled to do it, not in his own energy, but with that which Christ Jesus gave to him. We see throughout the New Testament that Paul toiled spreading the gospel. He toiled admonishing. He toiled teaching. So where do we expend our efforts? What is it that we toil on? What is it that we wear ourselves out with? Are we toiling with the things of this world, or are we, with Christ's power, toiling to spread the gospel? Are we toiling in the right things or are we toiling on earthly things that will have no significance in eternity? 
Now, there are things that we have to do in life. We have to work. There's nothing wrong with that. We can have recreational activities. There's nothing wrong with that. But ask yourself, what is your life's toil? After Paul was transformed, he had one purpose for the rest of his life, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Nothing else mattered. Everything else was rubbish to him. After gaining righteousness through Christ, serving him was all that mattered. Now, Paul, we know that he worked when he needed to, as necessary, but his purpose was to serve Christ. He was laser-focused on a purpose. Serving Christ was primary in his life. Paul toiled for the preeminent one, the only one deserving of our sole attention. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in all we do, and continually increasing in the knowledge of him. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul goes on to describe some of the struggle he has for the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and others who have not seen him face to face. This word translated struggle in verse 1 of chapter 2 gives an allusion to what those living in that day would have known. This word struggle would have made him think of the Greek games where there was a constant struggle for victory. The contestants struggled for victory. They struggled in training and they struggled in the contest itself. And Paul presents the same idea of struggle to the Philippians. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The word is translated here in our passage of Colossians as struggle, and in Philippians 1 as a conflict. He says, Engaged in the same conflict, in the same struggle. Paul presents this idea of struggle to us as something that goes hand-in-hand with Christianity. Even while he was struggling, he still focused on others. We can imagine in Paul's day where nothing happened quickly, travel was slow, visits were rare due to distance, reports on the different churches required people to carry letters back and forth. How easy would it be to forget a church or group of people that you rarely or never see? We may have fallen into the trap of forgetting about others, but not Paul. His life purpose was to serve Christ, and he did that through people. He didn't have the modern-day inventions that make travel to faraway places quick and easy, yet he did not forget them. He still toiled in caring for others and trying to ensure doctrine was sound by teaching however he could by building up the early churches. And he describes what he was struggling for. He says, Paul Paul toiled to ensure his brothers and sisters in Christ were educated in the things of God, that they were encouraged, that they had assurance of what they'd been taught. He wants them to be encouraged through the difficulties and through the persecution. Encouragement that resulted in them being unified in love. And I can tell every one of you that are redeemed that without a doubt you can be richer than you already are. I mean, let's face it, if we're redeemed, we already have been given what we can never earn and what we never deserved in the redemption offered through Christ. But I'm telling you that above that, in addition to that, you can attain additional riches. And let me explain to you that in the light of what Paul states here in verse 2, chapter 2. As Christians, we live day by day growing in sanctification. We should be striving each day to grow more mature as we grow in sanctification. What greater purpose can there be than to reach a full assurance of understanding of who our Savior is? What greater joy can there be than to gain knowledge so we can know more about the God that we serve? As we learn more, as we understand more, we know more about God's nature and his will for us. The more we know, the more understanding we will have. Would you ever call a servant good if he or she knew nothing of their master? Would you say that they loved their master, they knew nothing of him, and even worse, that they had no desire to know him? What servant would reject knowing such a great mystery? Think about this. There are riches in the future of every believer in this life. I'm speaking of this physical life now. Paul speaks of the riches that lay before us. These riches are not monetary. Monetary riches cannot compare to what we have in store for us in this life and the one to come. But he describes riches as a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We're kind of programmed when we're young to think about what career we'll have, how we'll support ourselves and our families. We think about the houses and the cars and the pets and the food and the clothing and education. But Paul's telling us here that through our sanctification, we have riches ahead of us when we gain a full assurance of understanding, when we gain knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. If you want happiness, forget everything else you pursued. If you want riches beyond measure, riches that can never be lost, seek out Christ. Search the scriptures, learn of the God we serve, come to a full assurance of understanding of the Savior that died and rose for us. Search out the scriptures and gain a knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. What should we be searching for in the scriptures? Paul tells us, he states that it is in Christ where we find hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want riches, if you want true happiness, riches that will last through any circumstance, then seek him out. But we need to make an effort to be diligent about seeking out the truth of scripture. It takes effort and it takes discipline. What riches in this world can equate to the riches of wisdom and knowledge of the one who bore our sins and imputed his righteousness to us? All through this book, Paul speaks of Christ being first in everything, how he is preeminent in everything. But is he preeminent in our lives? If someone were to examine me, if someone followed me around 24 hours a day for the next week, would they say that Christ is preeminent in my life? If someone could see the important things in my life, those that I spent the most time and effort on, what would it be? I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that we cannot have money or we cannot have possessions. I'm saying that our possessions should not be our priority. Are we laying up our treasures in heaven where moth and dust do not corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal? Is Christ preeminent in our lives? And I think that is the crux of what Paul is getting at here when speaking to Colossians. Is Christ preeminent in our lives? Paul states his reason for all of this in verse 4, in order that no one may delude the Colossians. This is the first indication we see why Paul wrote this letter. I think he spent every verse up to this point telling about Christ, telling about his preeminence of how there are riches in him. Why? Because the Colossians were being misled. Someone was deluding them. Someone was misleading them with plausible arguments. So what exactly is a plausible argument? It's simply a persuasive argument. We've all heard of people that use persuasive speech, those that use the art of persuasion to direct what others do. We've heard this described as a salesman that can sell ice to Eskimos. And we've all seen it within the realm of false teachers within Christianity. Paul doesn't elaborate on exactly what the persuasive speech was or who it was from, but we do know that they were being misled by persuasive speech. There were people who were persuading them towards sin and taking them away from Christ. And we need to learn from that. We need to avoid those smooth talkers that mix in a little lie with a lot of Scripture. One preacher described it as 99% true with 1% lie mixed in to deceive. And Paul tells them that true wisdom, true knowledge is found in Christ and not in anything else. Every one of us can search out the hidden things of Christ. Every one of us can gain wisdom and knowledge that will profit us for eternity. The knowledge we gain of Christ doesn't just profit us now. It will be useful for all of eternity. What we do for him here can have an impact for all of eternity. Paul speaks of his struggle, of his suffering, of his toiling, But he says he does this for the brethren. He wants them to know the God who sent his son to die in our place. He wants them to know that Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. He wants them so grounded in truth that they will not be persuaded by those enemies of God who disrupt the church. As I think about this, I can give the Colossians some leeway in their air. They didn't have the scriptures like we do. They had these letters sent from Paul. They had the word of God taught, passed down by mouth by those sent by Christ. But we have the complete word of God at our fingertips Anytime we want it. And are we utilizing it? 
Paul tells them not to be misled. Even though he is not physically with them, he is with them in spirit. Remember that what he stated in the beginning of the book, he always thanked God for them, and since the day he heard of them, he has not ceased to pray for them. He was not with them physically, but through constant prayer, he was with them in spirit. When we sincerely pray for someone, as Paul did, when we pray fervently for them, how can we forget them? What greater feeling do we have as Christians than to hear that a brother or sister in Christ is praying fervently, is praying consistently, is truly pleading on our behalf to the Father? I know these words comforted the Colossians. I know that when they read this, that they were encouraged that Paul, who was busy taking the gospel to the world, was not too busy to pray for the Colossians. So how was our prayer life? What brothers and sisters in Christ have we prayed for? When was the last time we pleaded on behalf of others? When was the last time we communed with God and shared our concern for one another? When was the last time we told the Father that we were grateful for the brothers and sisters he gave us, for those around us? When was the last time that we rejoiced to see the growth in faith of those that we're praying for? Paul makes a transition to verse 6. He states, therefore, showing the connection between what he just stated and what he is now stating. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul transitions from how he described Christ's preeminence and the riches of Christ. Now he states it was this very Christ that you received, Colossians. Now you need to walk in him. And that seems like a simple thing to do with just a cursory look. But let's consider what that really means. Our walk is a very important concept that we need to understand and we need to practice. I've said it before, Paul frequently describes our walk, what it should and should not look like. He does this to the Romans and the Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, here the Colossians and Thessalonians. Our walk as Christians is also described by John the first, second, and third John. It is mentioned enough that we should consider its importance. It is mentioned frequently, so there is no doubt that we need to heed it. So what is this walk that Paul and John mentioned? They describe characteristics of what the redeemed should look like, traits we should display. Paul stated to the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's what Paul is stating here. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Live your life in a way pleasing to the one who redeemed you. Demonstrate in the way you live such that people know the king whom you serve. Show in the way you live your life that Christ is preeminent. And how exactly do we do that? What does walking in him look like? Paul gives us some examples. He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What if everything we did exuded Christ? If our roots are Christ and we're built up in him, our lives would look different. People would see something different in us. We should be fixed in the faith, firm in the faith, grounded and sure of the scriptures, just as they were taught. It's no new command to be rooted up in Christ, to be absorbed in knowing him by searching out the scriptures. But the last three words in verse 7 seem to be the hardest for me. He says, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul, knowing we will all face trials, knowing we will all face testing, knowing we will all face suffering, still tells us to abound in thanksgiving. How can we abound in thanksgiving? How can we give thanks when we continue to suffer? How can we be thankful when we go through trial after trial after trial? And I think the key to that is what Paul wrote right before that. He says, rooted up and built up in him. We can do that by being rooted and built up in him, firm in the faith. A proper and thorough knowledge of him will change our outlook on our lives. How can we serve a master we know nothing of? How do we understand the actions of our master when we know very little of his nature? If we consider a plant or a tree, they cannot survive without their roots. Roots bring water, it brings nourishment to the tree, roots bring life-sustaining nutrients. 
We can see that same correlation with us. When we're rooted in Christ, he provides us with those things that will assist us in sustaining us. But roots have another function to the tree. We've seen this after hurricanes. Roots provide a firm foundation. Roots provide stability to the tree. Without a firm foundation, without the stability the roots provide, trees will easily be pushed over. Remember what we covered in chapter 1. Christ and the knowledge of him is foundational. Foundational things must be precise and exact, and so must our knowledge of him be. We stand firm in him. When our roots are in Christ, we will be built up and stand firm in him. And Paul states that we must be also established in the faith. We must also be firm in the faith. So when we're rooted and built up, firm in our faith, we will abound in thanksgiving no matter what we face. So verses 6 and 7 were reliable instruction given to the Colossians how they should act and function. It was instruction on things they should emulate. And Paul contrasts that in verse 8 by warning of how not to look, how not to act. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I see verse 8 as Paul giving us some insight into the problem with the Colossians, the error that he's addressing It's not specific, but nevertheless, it gives us an idea of what was going on. I think this is along the same idea of verse 4 where he states that he did not want them to be deluded with plausible arguments. There are some other elements of this error given later in the chapter. There's some danger that is affecting the Colossians. Paul starts with see to it. We can also phrase it as take heed. Paul is warning them of an imminent danger. And we can state this warning in another way. Take heed lest there be anyone who carries you off as spoil. So consider that explanation. It may remind us of some, someone whose desire to mislead is driven by carrying away or developing followers by misdirecting their viewpoints. Paul is stating that there is someone that can mislead the Colossians from truth into error. There are those that will mislead them through philosophy, which he says is empty deceit. And the protection against this error is Christ and the knowledge of him. When in doubt, we can always flee to Scripture. When we are unsure, when we hear someone with convincing words, our measuring rod is Scripture. Everything needs to be measured against that. If it doesn't match up with Scripture, we need to avoid it. Paul tells them not to be misled. He points them again to Christ. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He repeats what he already stated in verse 19 of chapter 1. Paul is saying, Colossians, see to it that you are not misled. If you're searching for something, find it in Christ. He is full deity. Jesus is God and thus is the source of all knowledge. The entire fullness of God dwells in Christ. There was no part of God missing in him. He is fully God. Don't look to human tradition. Look to the one in whom deity dwells bodily. He is where you need to turn. And not only is he the source of knowledge, the redeemed have been filled in Christ. We are filled, we are complete in Christ, we lack nothing if we're in him. When we know that we are filled in him in Christ, why do we look for fulfillment elsewhere? And notice that it does not state that we can be filled in him, it states that we have been filled in him. If we are full in him, why do we look for happiness or knowledge or wisdom elsewhere? If we are full in him, why are we not satisfied in him? Christ is sufficient for us. Christ is the head. He's the chief of all ruling authority. He is the one to whom all others are subordinate to. Everyone and everything is subordinate to Christ. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him we have been filled. Christ, the head of all rule and authority. Paul goes on in verses 11-12. He says, In him also, in him we were circumcised. In him we were buried in baptism. We were raised with him through faith by the power of God. Paul uses that Old Testament identification of circumcision and its removal of a small part of flesh 
to how we are now identified. It's no longer just a small part removed, but the entire body of flesh. These two verses give us an image of the death of Christ and how we identify with that through baptism. But not only his death, but his resurrection, how he was raised from the dead, and how baptism represents us being raised after the death of the old man into a new creature in Christ. In him, in Christ, in our union with Christ, we were circumcised not by the hands of man. It was not a physical act, but a spiritual one. This new distinguishing sign is what we have now in Christ, what he has done to us in him, how we are now identified in him. Paul paints a picture for us, one of the old man being buried, that old nature that served the prince of the air, that old nature that was concerned only about Seth, that old man being buried, and then through faith in Christ, the new man raised up just as Christ was raised from the dead. He says we were all dead in our trespasses, our trespasses against the Father in heaven. So how are we forgiven? Paul describes our sins as a record of debt, our sin debt. We are indebted due to our sins to the Father. It is a debt we cannot possibly pay on our own. We have no means to do it ourselves. There is a legal demand for our sins. It's the law of God that reveals to us our sin debt that is owed to him. And the law showed us that we cannot uphold it, so we need one who can. Through the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Christ, our record of debt can be removed. Our sin is imputed to Christ. He takes it on for the redeemed. Paul states that our record of debt was canceled and Christ nailed it to the cross. That signified that it is removed from us and paid for by him. Paul goes back to the reconciliation he mentioned in verse 19 of chapter 1, tying this reconciliation to the cross. And consider the imagery Paul uses here. They nailed our Savior to the cross. The one who was nailed to the cross took our debt. He set it aside and nailed it to that same cross that he was fastened to. At that cross, our sin was paid for. The debt was paid. The sin debt of the redeemed is paid in full. That is the picture we get in nailing our sins to the cross. We have a sin debt that we cannot pay on our own. We are hopeless and by the law of God, legally bound to pay for our sin debt. But Christ intervened. He took on our debt and he paid it in full. We can look to that cross where he was crucified, but we no longer see Christ there. He is gone, but we see our sin nailed there. In Paul's closing idea in this section after nailing our sins to the cross in verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says that Christ disarmed rulers and authorities. We can see more imagery in this statement. This verse is describing a victorious Christ. It is describing the victory Christ had over all who opposed him. I think Paul's word usage gives us the idea of a practice of Roman armies at that time. It paints a picture of what God has done through Christ. We can look at how Paul uses the word disarm metaphorically to better understand it. So in Paul's day, when a conqueror took over another group of people in battle, after the victory, he would plunder them, stripping them of their weapons of their goods. And after that was done, there might be a victory parade where the new ruler was put on display, shaming the one removed from power. And I think Paul uses that idea to convey the image that God disarmed or we stripped the rulers and authorities of their power, shaming them as he displays his triumph over them through the risen Christ. So consider this. Jesus was flogged, beaten, spit upon, mocked, and nailed to the cross. And along with the physical pain of scourging and beatings, Jesus suffered through crucifixion, which was a slow and painful means of death. But this was a final act of perfect obedience to the Father as Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. So picture this in your heads. It's the end of Christ's ministry on the earth. The Jewish leaders thought that they were finally rid of Jesus. Pilate tried to wash his hands of him. The Roman soldiers mocked him. 
Those passing by Jesus on the cross wagged their heads at him. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him. One of the men crucified with him reviled him. Satan thought that he had finally won. But when the time had come, the light of the sun failed and there was darkness over the land. Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks were split in two, and tombs were opened. And our Savior went to the grave. He rose again after the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And death was defeated, and salvation was won. That church is a Christ that is victorious. That is a Christ that disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is a Christ that put them to open shame. That is a Christ who triumphed over his enemies. And with that idea of our victorious risen Christ in our heads, I want to focus all that we've gone through pertaining to Christ. I want to summarize how Paul has described Christ to the Colossians thus far, up to this point through verse 15 in chapter 2. Let's try to understand, if nothing else, how he is preeminent in all things, how he is first in all things, how he is sufficient in all things. So let's review the ways in which Paul has described Christ up to this point. Let's review how he, what he said of him. It is Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation. Christ, all things were created through him and for him. Christ, who is before all things. Think of how he is first in all. Christ, who holds all things together. Christ, who is ahead of the body of the church. Christ, who is the beginning. Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Christ, who is preeminent. Think of his preeminence and sufficiency. Christ, whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Christ by whom the redeemed are reconciled. Christ who made peace by the blood of his cross. Christ by his death we are reconciled. Christ by his death we are holy and blameless and above reproach. Listen to how Paul has presented the risen Savior to us. Christ who was afflicted for the church. Christ God's mystery. Christ the hope of glory. Christ whom we proclaim. Christ who works within us. Paul is implanting the idea of the preeminence of Christ, how he is first in everything. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ in whom we have been filled. Christ who is ahead of all rule and authority. Christ in whom we were circumcised. Are you starting to see how Christ is preeminent? Are you starting to get the picture yet? And Paul said, Christ, whom we were buried with in the baptism. Christ, who raised us in faith. Christ, the reason why we are forgiven of all our trespasses. Christ, the reason why the record of dead that stood against us was canceled. Christ, who nailed our debt to the cross. Christ, who triumphed over rulers and authorities. That is 31 separate descriptions of Christ that Paul has given thus far in this letter to the Colossians. Halfway through this letter. In 43 verses, we can list at least 31 ways Paul has described the superiority of Christ, how Christ is first in all things, how we have all in Christ, how he is sufficient for us. Are you starting to see Paul's picture? Paul paints a wonderful picture of our Savior, one who is preeminent over everything. In our introduction to this letter, I mentioned two things to keep in mind as we go through this book, the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. I hope those two ideas are becoming clear as we explore 
this letter. We need to have a correct picture of Christ. Redeemed, do our lives demonstrate that Jesus Christ is preeminent? Can others look at our lives and see that Jesus Christ is preeminent? Do we demonstrate his supremacy? Do our lives demonstrate his sufficiency for us? Redeemed, you that have received Christ Jesus, are you walking in him? Are you rooted up and built up in him? Are you established in the faith, abounding with thanksgiving? We have some work to do. We've been challenged. We've been encouraged. We've been reminded of the standard we have in Christ, and the bar is set high. We fail day by day, yet we receive mercy day after day. And we must work while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. But we can take comfort in the fact that despite our failures, we are made right in Christ. We can be comforted in the fact that the redeemed will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And to those that do not know Christ, I've described to you the preeminent one. So who do you say he is? It is in him and through him and by him and through no one else but him that you will find redemption. Come to him, all you that labor and are heavy laden, burdened by the evil of this world, loaded down with troubles in a world that offers no hope, no rest for the soul, because Christ will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you, learn from him, because Christ is gentle and he's lowly in heart. It's only in him that you're going to find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Come while I stay, because the night is coming. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm overwhelmed at the great description of our Savior. And over and over and over how Paul points us and points the Colossians toward our Christ. Such great description of him and his nature and who he is, and yet there's so much more. I pray, Lord, as we think about that, our example in Christ, our example in Paul, we would learn to rejoice in our suffering. I pray, Lord, that we would, like Paul, that we would toil in spreading the gospel and serving that Savior. Lord, I pray for those that, that do not know Christ. I can't fathom how anyone in this day and time and all that goes on in this world can handle this world without Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would open up eyes, that you would soften hearts, you would help them to understand their need for the Savior, understand that sin debt that has to be paid. I pray, God, as we continue through this book, you would paint an image in our minds of Christ and who he is. You would help us, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire to seek him out, we know it's difficult, Lord, the discipline it takes, and there's so many things to pull us away in this world, and things to do, and things to keep us busy, and to pull us away from the one that redeemed us. I do thank you, Lord, for this church and this body, and the people that are here, and the brothers and sisters in Christ that you brought together out of your sovereign will. We're grateful for the talents and the compassion and the love for one another. We pray that you would continue to build us up. As I think about that error and how easy it is to get off, Lord, I pray that we would be diligent to be in your word. I pray you would protect this body, this body of people, protect us from those like to the Colossians and the Galatians have gone to sway people away from Christ. I pray, Lord, that we have that desire. We'd learn so much about scripture that we would know when we're being told things that are in error. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow each day. 
to be better servants of Christ. Pray for your protection on this body, Lord, that you would guide us, you would build us up to a people that are obedient to you, that are joyful in everything. And we know, Lord, in this body, there's many people, Lord, that, that suffer, that have health issues and problems, and we know the reality of it, Lord. It's not an easy life. I pray that we would turn to Christ. We would understand those times when we feel we cannot make it, and now that we can through Christ. Help us, Lord, to understand our, our purpose and our suffering and helping out the body. I pray, Lord, you'd help us each time that we come into this place to worship. We know better how to worship you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.